scripture lesson this evening as we continue our study of Ephesians for our evening services comes to we come to Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 so that is our scripture lesson this evening this is the word of the Lord as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the church at Ephesus. As we approach the end of this letter, we come to some uh, final instructions from Paul. And so that's why the first word of this, uh, this scripture reading is, Finally! <clears throat> So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word as we read the inspired and therefore the infallible word of God, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me that Utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of God. When Paul's letter to the Ephesians The Apostle has taught us a great deal. He gives us some specific commands regarding how we are to live out the unity of God's church that he taught us about with the diversity of gifts and the roles that we have. You may recall that as we make it through, make our way through this passage tonight, that this is what I preached Uh, as I was a candidate for this pulpit. I think it was the second time that I came out. And so those of you with really good memories won't hear anything new here tonight. Um, Whether in ordained office, uh, whether amid the congregation in general, whether in marriage, in uh, parent-child relationships, these are things that uh, Paul has talked about, whether at work, Uh, Christian faith changes the way that we treat and think of one another. These are things that Paul has taught in the second half of this letter. He taught about some of the doctrines of the faith 
uh, the first half of the letter, and then he's teaching their applications in the second half. Uh, Paul does not claim that living these things out is going to be an easy thing. In fact, the more we live out God's high calling for the church and for us as individual Christians, the more Satan, that spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, as he called him in chapter 2, and the prince of the power of the air, the more he's going to oppose us. The whole world system, under the influence of sin and Satan, will actually try to make our growth in godliness as difficult as possible, and especially will try to make our proclamation of the gospel to the lost as difficult as possible. It's not a coincidence that when we pray, that here we have prayers in church here, I so frequently pray for those who are under persecution, uh, those who in places where the laws do not allow them to preach the gospel to uh, those who are unsaved or particular groups like Muslims. And of course, no government on earth has the right to override God's law. And so Christians in those lands have every right to ignore such a wicked law. And this would be true also of uh, recent laws in uh, Canada, a supposedly free country, uh, where uh, they have, if applied toward the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word, particularly in regard to sexuality, uh, could be construed as trying to convert people away from certain behaviors, uh, which now is against the law in Canada. And so Christians preaching God's word on those things could be fined or jailed. That is part of a world system that is under the influence of sin and Satan, and that is opposing the gospel. So we need to be prepared to do battle against that. But we need to remember that that battle, as Paul says here, is not one against flesh and blood. So we don't take up the arms of this world, we don't take up swords or in our days guns and tanks and try to uh, force conversions or anything of the kind. Never has that been the right thing for Christians to do and seldom have Christians actually done it when we compare ourselves to other religions, but Of course, our standard to compare ourselves to is God's standard, and so when Christians have fallen short and failed in these things and done the wrong thing, we have to repent and acknowledge it. The whole series, of course, could be preached on this topic of spiritual warfare and even just on each of the pieces of the armor of God that are mentioned in this scripture tonight. But my intent for this evening is to give us an overall picture of the whole armor and how these things work together. It's probably not a mere coincidence that at the time that Paul wrote this and wrote about the whole armor of God here, he was, as he says in verse 20, an ambassador in chains. We know about when he wrote this book. Uh, At the end of the book of Acts, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And we know that this letter was written during the imprisonment that ended in Rome. Some have argued that it uh, happens maybe while he was still in Caesarea before this, where he was initially held in custody, and then he uh, would have been surrounded by Roman soldiers at that time, but then he appealed his case to Caesar, and he was taken to Rome. It's far more likely that this was written uh, when he was actually in the city of Rome itself, having to pay uh, for a home himself, Thanks to the support from churches that he had founded, he was able to to pay for a space to to live in. And during that time, uh, typically that kind of custody 
involved a soldier being chained to the prisoner at all times. And of course it wasn't the same soldier every minute of the day. There would have been shifts. Uh, So this is probably what Luke means in Acts 28.16 when he says Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. It's hardly surprising that if that's the case, that when by God's providence the apostle is in constant contact with and constant presence of a Roman soldier, that he might write about a Roman soldier's armor. He says in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6 here in Ephesians, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the evil one. So notice a few things. One thing is that it's not our strength, not our strength, I should emphasize there, on which we depend. It's the Lord's strength. Be strong in the Lord. In the strength of His might. Not in the strength of your might. Christ already has crushed Satan at his crucifixion and at his resurrection that was confirmed. Satan has been trod under the feet of Christ. He has crushed the serpent's head as was predicted in chapter 3 of Genesis. But Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion as Peter tells us. I ran lion and Peter together. So he's, he's a roaring lion, as Peter tells us. Uh, in his death throes, as it were. Uh, like, you ever see a serpent that's... You ever ever uh, crushed a serpent's head before? Ever killed a snake in your yard? They don't just lay still, do they? They writhe around for a while. And this is sort of like that. He's, he's had his head crushed, but he's still writhing around and... He's trying to bring as much harm as he possibly can to Christ's people. I don't think that it's a coincidence that if you read old stories about dragons, that dragons are often when they're when they're killed by the the warrior whoever kills them, they don't go quietly. They usually do a whole lot of damage. Uh, often killing the person who killed them uh, while while they're dying. I think that's based on a the biblical understanding of the dragon. That he is trying to bring as much harm as he possibly can before his final defeat, because he has been dealt his death blow. So as he's doing that. As he's prowling around like a roaring lion, we, as Christ's people, empowered by him, are able to participate in Satan's final defeat. Romans 16.20 says, God will crush Satan under our feet. He's already been crushed under Christ's feet, but we're now part of the body of Christ, and so in in a a manner of speaking, by extension, we are crushing Satan under our feet. In Luke 10 19, Christ gives his disciples authority to tread on scorpions and serpents and not be harmed. That's a a way of speaking of of having power over these spiritual forces of darkness that Paul talks about here. But we can only do this relying on his strength. I think of the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts 
who try to do this in their own strength, even though they're really they're they're naming, they're giving lip service to Jesus, and they they're trying to exercise a demon, and they they say uh, to the demon possessed man. Um, <clears throat> that they adjure the demon they in the name of Christ and Paul who preaches him. In the name of Jesus. Well, they say, well, we know who Jesus is, and we know who Paul is, but who are you? And then this one young man beats up the seven sons of Sceva, overpowers them physically. We can't do this in our own strength. We have to rely on Christ's strength. Biblical truth, as we'll see, is what defeats Satan. Now, most of us, I pray, won't ever have to contend directly with demon possession or any of that kind of thing in our presence, Uh, but we do wrestle against these spiritual forces. The Christian, to do that, is to put on the whole armor of God. And so, again, here it must be God's armor. And it's not our armor. It's not something I built for myself out of my own good works. It's something that God has given me in His grace. We must not rely on this armor piecemeal either. You can imagine a soldier getting ready for battle in the ancient world and he only puts on little pieces of his armor. He's going to be very vulnerable. It has to be the whole armor, Paul says. Otherwise, the schemes of the devil, who was that subtle and wily serpent in the garden, can get to you. So God's people are encouraged here to stand. Verses 11, 13, and 14, we see language of standing. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 13, Take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand or to stand firm. That could be translated. And then verse 14 begins with stand therefore. So you see that imagery of standing. Standing firm. We need to remember that enemy is not uh, primarily the unbeliever. It's so easy for us to get frustrated with the arguments leveled against the gospel by unbelievers in the world and to begin to think of them as the enemy. And really what we ought to think of them more as captives of the enemy. And we need to free them from that captivity. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Only the Holy Spirit working through that gospel can do that. Certainly unbelievers are in enmity with God, just as we were until saved by Christ. If not for God's grace, we would all be in enmity with God still. So we should rather pity those who are in enmity with God than be in enmity with them or think of them primarily as our enemies. Our enemy is spiritual. That's where the focus of this warfare is. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, first we note that that four there is explaining something that came before it, and uh, the thing that came before it is the reference here to the wiles of the devil. We need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the reason Paul's saying we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
So these principalities, these powers, these rulers of darkness, these spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, those are not talking about, uh, we could read some of those words like principality, for example, as referring to human authorities. But in context here, Paul is talking about things that aren't flesh and blood, things that are spiritual. The term wrestle refers to -to hand-to-hand combat, a constant struggle to gain advantage over the opponent without getting entangled and held down by him. Uh, You've probably seen Greco-Roman wrestling if you watch the Olympics, for example, every four years. Uh, It's not like what's called professional wrestling in our culture. I remember many years ago... uh, seeing a skit, you remember the time when we finally began letting our professional basketball players play basketball in the Olympics, and all of a sudden, we always won, right? the dream team, because we, before that, we had kept our best basketball players out of the Olympics because they were professional basketball players, right? Uh, but then we allowed those professional basketball players to play in the Olympics, and suddenly the USA was getting the gold all the time. And then sort of poking a little bit of fun at that, I saw a skit somewhere where somebody said that we were going to also let our professional wrestlers wrestle in the Olympics. And, and you'd see people doing Greco-Roman wrestling and then somebody all of a sudden would come, in, uh, come into the circle with a, with a uh, folding chair and hit the opponent over the head with a folding chair like you, do, like you see in, again, I say in quotes, professional wrestling. It does, I will say, I've had friends who've done that. Uh, and it takes a great deal of athletic ability, uh, but uh, I'll give this away. They already know ahead of time who wins. Uh, it's, it's scripted. But when you see actual wrestling that Paul would have seen in his day, you know what it is. It is this fierce struggle. And our opponents that we're struggling with, struggling not to get pinned down by, but to hold down so they are incapable of moving, they're not physical, but they're spiritual beings. So we're not talking about physical wrestling here. These are beings that are not subject to human weaknesses and frailties. They are demonic beings. They are fallen angels. They are cosmic powers. That's what all of these terms are referring to in Paul's day. We see this in pre-Christian era Jewish literature. Uh, These things are are beings referred to. These are ways of referring to angels and especially fallen angels. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are super mundane, to use a technical term. That just means outside of ordinary experience, right? Beyond our ordinary world. Uh, probably what Paul means by saying heavenly places here, not saying that they are in the realm of the redeemed, in the realm of the uh, holy presence of God, though they came from that. But that they are beyond our ordinary daily world. So Paul reminds us again, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done so, to stand, or to stand firm. So this armor is necessary in order that we make it through the evil days of this fallen world, still standing firm, and not having fallen 
or succumbed to the temptations, to the wiles of the devil. Specifically, Paul tells us how to stand by employing this armor. To stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Literally, this means having girded up your loins with truth. So this was a, uh, an expression that came from times even ancient to Paul. And you'd see this expression in the times of David, for example, and even well before that, a thousand years before Paul's time, uh, in which girding up your loins referred to a man wearing something of a long robe or skirt, and in order to be able to fight or to run, he would gird up his loins. This is an expression the Lord used to tell uh, men, get ready for action. Because you'd have to pull the, the back part of the garment up between your legs and tuck it into your belt so that then uh, your legs were free for running and for fighting. And so the term was still used in Paul's day, even though the clothing wasn't quite the same. The ancient soldier wore a loose-fitting tunic and the belt cinched everything up keeping the material out of the way when fighting so here he's talking not about the the ancient way of tucking the the garment in but more of cinching things up the belt was a resting place for the sword and the other equipment of the soldier when not in use and here the sword as we'll see later is the word of god as Jesus tells us, God's word is truth. It's the sword of truth. So God's word is both the weapon, as we'll see later, but it's also first that on which everything else depends. Gird your waist with truth. As John seventeen seventeen, Jesus says, Your word is truth to the Father. So God's word has to be that on which everything depends. It'll be our best weapon, but before that it has to be the foundation of our armor. It prepares us for battle. It ties up the loose ends, the way the Roman soldier's belt kept everything tucked in the right place, kept everything cinched up. So it ties up the loose ends of our lives that we might not be tripped up, that we might not be entangled, slowed, or left vulnerable. So you start with God's word. Next, is the breastplate of righteousness. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a piece of armor that covered the whole torso. The best ones were overlaid with bronze or steel in Paul's day. Some of them would be made of leather. You'd have a softer material underneath and then this hard breastplate over it. It protected the vital organs. Righteousness. You have a breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ in which we are clothed. We have to depend on his righteousness. Also then, our own righteous obedience to Christ, which we learn from what? The word, which is the belt of truth. It's that righteousness that protects us against the deadly attacks of the enemy. Rely on Christ's righteousness and not on your own for your standing before God that you might not uh, receive the deadly attacks of the enemy. And also, be building up, be growing in your own righteousness by God's grace, that you would be protected from those attacks. Lack of godliness leaves you vulnerable to the attacks that Satan aims at the Christian's heart. We succumb to temptations then. The more holy and Christ-like a Christian is, 
the more likely he will resist the devil's temptations. Next we see in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Literally it says having shod the feet, but obviously it's your feet that's being uh, talked about here. Your feet need to be shod. That's just an old-fashioned word for having shoes on. Putting on shoes. With the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman soldier had thick-soled shoes with studs on the bottom. So maybe think of something like a modern golfer's shoes or a runner's shoes with the spikes on them. These studs gave him extra traction when in the field. So when he's... You didn't usually have uh, battles taking place on paved roads, right? They were, they were usually out in the fields. And so this gave him extra traction in the earth. If you think about uh, the way that a shield wall was formed in the ancient times, say when you're having a, to meet a charging enemy, the Roman soldiers would have their shields, which we'll talk about here in a bit, uh, overlapping one another. And if they had enough soldiers to have rank upon rank, they would have the ranks behind them. Uh, so the men behind would have their shields behind you to help, to help hold you up if you were in the front line. And you would use those studs in your shoes to dig in and into the ground. And these shield walls, these lines of soldiers, would hold firm when an attacking enemy army just ran right into them. These shoes were used for that standing firm. The gospel is the shoes of the Christian. The gospel which declares peace between sinners and the holy God gives us confidence to stand firm. Satan will come to you and in some way try to say, well, who do you think you are to serve God? And one answer is, well, I'm nobody, but Christ is. Christ is somebody, and I'm in Him. If I remember that, then I'm not going to waver under that kind of pressure. We do not rely on our own strength to stand against Satan any more than our own works saved us in the first place. We are confident in our Savior God sovereignly to cause us to persevere. And so as we uh, are prepared... With that gospel of peace, we can stand firm. We can dig in where we are and not be moved. Next, we are to take up the shield of faith in all circumstances, as the Greek is uh, rendered, perhaps a little better. The, the word used there for shield refers to the large shield, about two and a half feet wide and four and a half feet tall, that protected the whole body of the Roman soldier. Our constant trust In Christ, our faith gives us a general and wide protection from temptation and from the wiles of Satan. You need to rely on Christ, put your trust in Him, and that gives you your most general protection. Sin happens when you believe the devil's lies, that God doesn't see what you're doing, that your momentary pleasure is better than communion with your Creator, and so on. 
Those temptations are hurled at you like fiery darts, like flaming arrows. The Roman shield was often covered in a a leather pre-treated to extinguish flames, and if they knew it was coming, they might even wet their shields ahead of time. We extinguish Satan's fiery darts with faith. Trust that God promises, uh, God's promises really are better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's what guards you against temptation. Well, next Paul tells us, take the helmet of salvation. Uh, it wasn't long ago I was watching a, an expert on uh, ancient armor and that sort of thing, uh, sort of rating how people's armor looked in movies. And she uh, pointed out one of her pet peeves, which I can agree with, is the, amount, the number of times in the Hollywood movies that people go into a battle, they put on all this elaborate armor, and they don't put a helmet on their heads. Well, that's because so you can see their face in the movie, right? You know, you want to see what they look like. But only an idiot would have done that, or somebody who was in a desperate situation would have done that uh, in an ancient battle. If you could put a helmet on, you would put a helmet on. You don't want to leave your head vulnerable to overhead attacks. And Paul tells us our helmet is a helmet of salvation. One of Satan's greatest weapons against the believer is to get us to doubt our salvation. Again, who are you that Christ would save you? Are you really sure? Of course, there is such a thing as having false assurance. And we need to know that we're seeing that the fruits of Christ are, are being born in our life so that we can know that we are saved. We don't want to have a dead faith, which is no faith at all. A faith without works that is dead. But one of the greatest weapons Satan uses against the believer is to get us to doubt. Could Jesus really save you? Do you really need Jesus? Eh, aren't there other ways to God? How arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way. Well, of course, it would be pretty arrogant if I told someone, well, I figure that Jesus is the only way, so he must be the only way. But when Jesus himself tells me, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, it would be supremely arrogant for me to say, there must still be another way. Jesus must be wrong. No, Jesus knows what he's talking about. And Satan will try to get you to doubt that you are in Christ, that you are saved. We need to wear that helmet of salvation, protecting our heads from assailing doubts. And we can only do this if we see ourselves bearing the fruits that come from salvation. Peter tells us that God's power guards us for salvation, that we might see the tested genuineness of your faith. 1 Peter 1.7 When we see the fruits, when you see the fruits of saving faith, that is, when you see your obedience to God growing, pouring faith in, or when you see that pouring forth, I should say, in your life, you'll have an assurance that you are saved. And you can wear that assurance as a helmet to protect you from such doubts. Well, lastly comes the only offensive weapon. You've noticed all these things, if you've been paying attention, are defensive. We tend to think that you know it's more macho, right? We, we want to get out there and fight. And, and uh, often, and it's quite correct, I will uh, see people, you go to a conference or something, and somebody will hold up the Bible and say, did you bring your sword? And yes, it is your sword. 
But it also has to be, remember that belt which holds up everything else first. And before you use that sword, you need to have all the armor in place first. But now here is our only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon we have, the only offensive weapon we need, is God's Word. We don't need other fancy techniques to woo the world. We need God's Word. God's Word has its own power. It was God's word that Jesus himself used when Satan tempted him. Satan tried to twist that word. And that's what you'll encounter. You'll encounter people who try to twist the word of God to mean something that it doesn't mean. And the better you know the word of God, the less likely you will fall for that, and the more likely you'll be able to answer it. The truth of scripture drives Satan to retreat as we demolish strongholds of false teachings and hold every thought captive for Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. Prayer has to be integral to that. In employing this armor. How do you employ this armor? How do you put it on? How do you put it into action? Well, you could dress in the best armor, but if you just stood there, the enemy is still going to find a way to kill you. You ever play a, a video game? Some of you who are a little older than me probably haven't played a lot of video games, but I know those of you my age or younger uh, maybe have played some video games in your life. And if you're playing a combat game, what happens if you just drop the controller and just and just leave your character there to do nothing? Well, he gets trounced, doesn't he? The computer or your, the opponent playing against you uh, just beats you up mercilessly. So you, once you have this armor on, you have to use it. And how do you employ it? Here's how you do Starting at verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Use every kind of prayer, all prayer and supplication. Pray frequently, he says, always. Pray in keeping with God's revealed will, in the Spirit. Pray in a manner that is aware of what's going on around you. Be watchful. Being watchful, Paul says, pray persistently with all perseverance. And pray especially for God's people, for all the saints, and most especially for those who are preaching the gospel and who are suffering for it, as Paul desired boldly to preach it, even when he was in chains for it. Our duty of maintaining the unity and the purity of the church, which is a major point that Paul was making in this letter, is opposed by hostile spiritual forces. Our goal of preaching the gospel to the world is opposed by those hostile spiritual forces. Your personal growth is an offense to Satan. But the cross of Christ and his resurrection have defeated the serpent. Satan cannot touch Christ and so he seeks to take his anger out on Christ's children. There's a whole image of that, by the way, in the book of Revelation, where Satan, the dragon pursues the woman because he can't get the child uh, that was brought forth. The church is being pursued because he couldn't get Christ. Particularly, Satan delights in leading us into error and sin, which stunts our spiritual growth, which grieves the Holy Spirit within us. But God has given this defensive armor that we might not fall for that. 
And he's given us this sword to defeat Satan's attempts to harm our spiritual lives. Everything hangs on knowing God's word, the belt of truth. Then implement it. Our obedience guards our hearts, the breastplate of righteousness. Stand firm, knowing peace has already been made between you and God, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You're guarded by, and you can quench the lies of Satan with trust in Christ, the shield of faith. The fruit of obedience give you assurance of salvation to defeat doubt, the helmet of salvation. And then you drive back Satan's temptations and arguments with God's word. You cut him down with the sword of the Spirit. All these things work together, employed by vigilant prayer to protect God's people and advance Christ's kingdom. So let us use this armor of God. Let's pray. Lord, may we put on and employ your whole armor, vigilantly, carefully, and prayerfully, Keep us relying on your word, obediently growing in it, that we might resist all the schemes of the devil. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we pray in his name. Amen.